0: You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, February 10th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Governor Gavin Newsom says his plan to safeguard the populace during the next chapter of the COVID saga will be unveiled next week. The California Report examines how perceptions of crime have sparked recall efforts for district attorneys in L.A. County and San Francisco. Will you be ready when 3G devices become obsolete? It could be sooner than you think. After regional news and weather, an essay from Molly Fisk, and an appreciation of silence from Chaplain Norris Burks.
1: This is the California report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Nearly two years after imposing the nation's first statewide stay home COVID order, Governor Gavin Newsom says his administration will outline a plan next week for moving forward in a world where coronavirus is endemic, meaning it's a virus that persists to some degree. It's a reflective plan in many respects. We're looking back at the last two years, what worked, what didn't, uh, what we've all learned, the journey we've been on together. I don't want to oversell it. I mean, it's not a, a prescriptive plan in every way, shape, or form. In fact, in many ways, it, it reflects the moment we're in, which is iterative uh, and allows for the kind of flexibility of thinking that is incumbent uh, upon all of us as it relates to dealing with any endemic, particularly one as stubborn um, and circulinear as COVID. Newsom's plan will still include quarantines, testing of those who don't show symptoms and other precautions, but those safeguards will vary. Newsom says state health officials will also outline the revised approach to school mask wearing requirements no later than Monday after negotiating with schools and teachers unions. The governor made the comments at a bill signing, which included one that requires larger companies to give workers up to two weeks of paid sick leave if they come down with the virus. All Bay Area counties except Santa Clara are aligning with the state and will end local mask mandates in most indoor settings next week. Health officials in Santa Clara say they're waiting for cases and hospitalizations to fall before lifting their masking rules. Los Angeles County has issued similar guidance. Meanwhile, further north, Yolo County has joined Sacramento and will also drop its universal mask mandate on February 16th. Chesa Boudin and George Gascon are respectively the district attorneys of San Francisco and Los Angeles counties. Both were also elected on reform platforms, promising to replace what they said was an ineffective, punishment-centered approach to criminal justice with one that emphasizes rehabilitation. But as crime rates and public concern about crime have gone up, both Boudin and Gascon now face campaigns to oust them from office. In San Francisco, Boudin faces a recall election in June, and in L.A., after one failed attempt to qualify a Gascon recall for the ballot, activists are moving forward with a second attempt. At a recall signature gathering event in Beverly Hills over the weekend, I met Sammy Charchian, who discussed his reasons for backing a Gascon recall. I was uh, held up at gunpoint at my office, and they uh, stole my property and they ransacked my office, and then I also had my home robbed. So you Felt the crime wave very personally. It's, it's ridiculous. From having a gun to my head at one occasion and then having my house completely ransacked and robbed. And you blame George Gascon for all of that, part of that, what? Um, I blame him for all of it. You know, they, they're, um, you know, they feel like there's no consequences and they're free to do these kind of things. If they're, if they're not you know, prosecuted and if they're just let go, there's
2: no need to stop.
1: Again, that was Sammy Charchian, supporting the recall campaign of L.A. County D.A. George Gascon. Here to talk more about the politics of the recall efforts in both L.A. and San Francisco is KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos. Marisa, thanks for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be here.
1: So give us a reality check when it comes to crime rates now in, say, L.A. and San Francisco. Uh, what are they and how do they compare to other parts of the state and to other times in history?
2: Yeah, so I guess we should say to start that we are at an all-time low nationally when it comes to both violent crime and property crimes. However, we have seen a huge spike occur during this pandemic. There was a big jump in murders across the country in 2020, a relatively smaller increase in these two counties compared to most of the state, including, ironically, Republican-led district attorney counties. Overall, they're actually down in both counties. So if you look at the statistics per capita, you're less likely to you know, have been the victim of a violent crime or property crime in either San Francisco or Los Angeles than in many smaller, especially rural counties. But I think that when it comes to personal safety, what matters is how you feel.
1: And what about the DAs themselves? Have they done things or said things that have uh, contributed to the campaigns now targeting them for recall?
2: So I do think that they've both made individual missteps around the politics and the communications of this. And I think that at the end of the day, these are very different counties. You're going to see in San Francisco sort of some of the tribalism that occurs within mm-hmm. democratic politics. In L.A., I think it's just a big place to step in after several years in San Francisco to be district attorney of. And I do think Gascone really rushed out a lot of his policies without perhaps making the case to not just the people that supported him in the campaign but the broader public and
1: if one or both of these guys are ousted from office what do you think that means for criminal justice reform not only in those counties but also nationally because they're right they're part of this wider national community of prosecutors who are trying to bring changes to criminal justice
2: That is sort of the million-dollar question, Saul. I mean, I do think, as I said, that each of these men have their own challenges that are perhaps not unrelated, but not necessarily directly tied to criminal justice reform. And I do think that broadly in the state, we're still seeing pretty strong support for the idea of, say, rehabilitation over prison. The public sentiment has changed around a lot of this stuff. Again, that can be very different if you're the victim of a crime, right? So I will be watching that. I would not make the assumption that if they were both recalled that that would automatically mean criminal justice reform is dead. I do think that it would be sort of a warning for a lot of these reformers. And I think it's going to be interesting to see whether the movement sort of takes this politically and and tries to use it. You know, one thing that has struck me is how much of the blame is put on these two individual prosecutors when there's really not any evidence to show that who a DA is has that big of an impact on crime. And at the end of the day, we don't see, say, the Republican registered district attorney in Riverside County being blamed every time there's a murder there, or even in Alameda County in the Bay Area, a Democrat. And so I I think that they are being held up as examples of this reform movement. But whether or not the movement sort of dies or or, or rises with them, I'm not completely sure that connection is there.
3: All
1: right. That is KQED's Marisa Lagos. Marisa, thank you so much for
3: joining us. My pleasure. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits stanfordhealthcare.org slash adapting care. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement.
1: And that's this edition of the California Report for Thursday, February 10th. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, have a great day.
0: If you're still carrying around a flip phone, it's time to take a close look at all of your wireless devices. That's because 3G service is becoming obsolete, some of it as soon
4: as this month. California News Service has the details. Most devices that run on 3G wireless technology will become obsolete this year, some in as soon as three weeks. In order to clear bandwidth for the new high-speed fifth-generation networks known as 5G, companies will shut off service to devices that use 3G. That includes older model flip phones, fire alarms, burglar alarms, personal emergency response necklaces or bracelets, and onboard navigation systems in older cars. Tom Camber is with Older Adults Technology Services from AARP.
5: What we're recommending is that a person really sit down and go through everything in their home and their car that might be connected to a wireless connection. Write down what the model number is and call the provider who's giving you service for the device.
4: AT&T will shut down its 3G network on February 22nd. T-Mobile shuts down its old Sprint network March 31st and its own 3G offerings at the end of July. And Verizon says it will retire its 3G service at the end of this year. Camber says you may have to replace your device, but you don't have to go with an expensive top-of-the-line 5G product if you only need a basic model.
5: Begin by saying, what is the most compatible new device that would be at the same level of cost of my old device, and can I do this cost-free? And many companies are trying to to offer it for free right now.
4: The website, SeniorPlanet.org from AARP, hosts a free online workshop this Thursday, February 3rd, to help people navigate the transition from 3G to 5G. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
0: In regional news, the Nevada County Community Library announced today that all library branches will reopen to in-person services on Tuesday. We know our libraries are much more than books. County librarian Nick Wilsick was quoted in a library news release. I'd like to thank our community for their patience and understanding over the past few weeks. The statewide COVID-19 mask mandate ends Tuesday. Nevada County officials haven't yet determined an end date for the county mask mandate. The Nevada County Community Library paused in-person services on January 20th in response to rapidly rising COVID-19 cases in Nevada County. During that time, it implemented curbside pickup to ensure that general library services were still available. Curbside pickup will still be available for anyone who would like to use it. The Sacramento Bee reports today that PG&E has put an estimate of more than $25 billion on its effort to plant thousands of miles of power lines underground in an effort to reduce wildfire risk. Eight months after announcing the project, as the Dixie Fire raged through Northern California, the utility's chief executive defended the expense as a game-changing investment that will make customers safer, the Bee reports. The project will take years. PG&E committed to burying power lines last summer just days after it acknowledged to investigators that its equipment was the likely cause of the Dixie Fire, which began when a tree brushed against the utility's power lines in a remote area of Plumas County. The Dixie Fire eventually blossomed into the second-largest wildfire in California history, burning 963,309 acres across multiple counties. More than 1,000 homes and other buildings were destroyed, and the fire devoured much of the tiny Plumas County community of Greenville. Putting wires underground is one of the most expensive wildfire risk strategies any utility can undertake, the B story says, and it remains to be seen if the $25 billion estimate is high enough to cover the entire 10,000 miles that are to be placed underground in the areas deemed at most risk to wildfire across PG&E's territory. The price tag is based on PG&E's belief that it can do the job for $2.5 million per mile. PG&E plans to spend $3.75 million per mile this year when it expects to complete 175 miles of work. Chief Executive Patty Poppy said she's confident that as the project ramps up, economies of scale and new technologies will bring costs into line. Also from today's Sacramento Bee, The drought is dragging on, and the thirsty residents of Southern California are preparing to spend heavily to buy water from the farm fields of the Sacramento Valley. The Board of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California directed its staff this week to start negotiating the purchases of as much as 100,000 acre-feet of water from the valley, deals that would be worth millions of dollars. The MWD has bought water from Northern California in eight of the past 16 years. The purchases can be a sensitive point in farm country where water sales will result in fewer acres of crops and damage to the local economies. The district's decision follows weeks of dry weather that have obliterated some of the gains made during a historically wet December. Turning to regional weather, unseasonably warm temperatures continue. After a weekend with daytime highs in the mid-70s, The forecast shows a slight chance of showers on Monday and cooler daytime highs at the beginning of next week. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 53, with light and variable winds. It will be warm again Friday with a high of 73 and a low of 53. In Truckee tonight, clear with a low of 24. Friday in Truckee, sunny with a high of 54 and a low of 21. In Sacramento this evening, clear with a low of 42. Friday in Sacramento, sunny with a high of seventy four and a low of forty two. And now Molly Fisk.
5: Molly Fisk. Observations from a working poet
3: One of my friends has a niece in Toronto where truck drivers are gathering in solidarity with the anti-mask anti-vaccine trucker convoys currently protesting in Ottawa. Ottawa is the capital of Canada, in case you've forgotten, and Toronto is Canada's largest city, located a hundred miles due north of Buffalo, New York, which is in the United States. For you local listeners, that's as far as from downtown Nevada City to Fairfield if you're driving west. In other words, just over an hour, which is not very far, especially since it's in another country. My friend's niece was asked how she was doing and reported the noise was pretty deafening, with honking truck horns, train whistles, fireworks, and hooligans, and thank God it was winter so the windows were closed. Driving anywhere was tricky. But she said it was hell for residents of the downtown women's shelter who were scared to go out, and for the already stressed parents of newborns who live near the encampment and have had no sleep due to incessant honking all through the night. The monster truck rally has become a beacon for every Canadian nitwit with an axe to grind, and quite a few Americans, too. People have stormed a soup kitchen, demanding meals that are meant for the destitute and threatening clients and staff. They're hurling racial insults and shoving people who do wear masks to the ground. Swastika flags and union jacks are waving. The presence of so many fuel trucks to keep the rigs running seems like a disaster waiting to happen. I looked all this up on the internet to find out more and discover that when arrests are made of truckers and other protesters, the reason is listed as causing public mischief. Questions of COVID and civil war aside, you really have to love a nation still considering strife and fracas to be a form of mischief, which is a word I think of only applying to people under the age of 12. It's so last millennium, isn't it? So proper, almost Victorian. It sounds like something one would want to cause rather than avoid. Here in the States, we call it disturbing the peace, which doesn't sound quite so appealing unless you're in a mood. There are days I definitely want to disturb the peace, especially the peaceful ignorance of anyone who thinks racism is a form of mischief. I wonder if in UN meetings, the Canadians and British say they want to return to sorting out that mischief in the Middle East. Language matters. You've heard me say this four billion times. It's why we try not to use words like lame and gay and bat guano crazy as casual insults, now that most of us have learned to avoid racial and ethnic slurs. It's why we teach ourselves to say they when we're talking about only one person, something my brain and tongue still haven't mastered. The arrest record I saw stated a 22-year-old had been taken in for assault with a weapon, administering a smoke bomb, and public mischief. To me, that sounds more like war than childish folly. What do you think?
5: Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the
0: Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Just as noise pollution was building to a crescendo, Commentator Chaplain Norris Burks encounters the deep silence of a spiritual audiology test.
5: Last month, my wife Becky and I took a bargain flight to the sun drenched volcanic island of Hawaii, retreating from the threatening snow in our California foothills. We spent much of the monotonous five hour trip watching videos. However, on final approach, the sweeping sight of the endlessly smooth beaches had me imagining where I might go to find some peaceful silence. The noise in my life had been building so slowly that I hadn't realized how it had squelched so much of what God wanted me to hear in the silence of creation. A few days after landing on the big island, we set out to find what Simon and Garfunkel called the sound of silence. We began our search with a one-hour trip from our Kona hotel to Mauna Kehu, almost 14,000 feet of dormant volcano. We broke through the clouds at 8,000 feet and finally reached the visitor's center at 9,200 feet. As we stepped from the car, we were spotlighted by the slanting rays of the fading sunlight. We layered our summer clothing and donned sweatshirts to ward off the chilly threat of hypothermia. We then set out to ascend another 200 feet to grasp the pallid hues of the setting sun. Within a few minutes, the sun was gone, and I found myself eager for our pending engagement with silent beauty. In the darkening dusk, I was excited to peer into the night skies, described on the park website as being among the clearest, driest, darkest places on the planet. What, I asked myself, would darkness look like? What would silence sound like? Little holes began poking through the sky like sparkling glitter on black canvas. This was the kind of sky that likely inspired pilot and poet John Gillespie Magee to claim he had put out his hand and touched the face of God. Silence is the unspoken partner in this darkness. Mauna Kea is so high that astronomers say that sometimes they hear meteors pass in the silence. In this solitude, if God had a hearing booth, This might be it. I could imagine the booth as a place where God played some tones for the listener and asked them to indicate which ear they were hearing from, their spiritual ear or their secular ear. The silence told me as of late I'd heard too much with my secular ear. My head seemed to be overflowing with the colluding cacophony of the distracting emails and voicemails, flight times and deadlines. In that moment, I was anxious to hear with my spiritual senses. But in that thinning air, the only sound I heard was my weight nervously shifting over the obsidian rocks. I heard my breath and my heartbeat. I was weary of being alone and covered, nearly smothered by the silence. I strained to hear something, anything at all. What else might I hear? Nothing. Nothing at all. Yet I'd never known nothing to sound so sacredly wonderful. It was as if I could hear the planet spin above me, as if I could hear myself aging, as if I could hear the clouds as they migrated toward a new home. The silence offered me a window into my soul as I stood honoring the injunction of the psalmist, Be still and know that I am God. As I walked back to the visitor center, guided by the sound of a car alarm, I couldn't help but feel a bit sad. Had silence become such a threatened commodity that it now belonged on the acoustically endangered list? Has the modern day made silence so threatening, distressful, and formidable that it must be sequestered to lonely mountaintops? I certainly hope not. We need to find silence every day, but in my case I was privileged to acquire an extra dose of it on Okehu. By the way, that car alarm that so carelessly broke the silence, it turned out to be mine.
1: The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the speaker only and not necessarily those of KVMR, its staff, management, board, or contributors.
2: That's
0: our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, host Martin Webb with an all-new edition of The Climate Report and a special focus on electric vehicles. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now with Amy Goodman. Then KVMR returns to the music you love, Jazz Workshop with Peter Grossman at 8, followed at 10 by Jive AF with Step D Luna. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Sierra Derm Center for Dermatology, specializing in general and cosmetic dermatology, skin cancer detection, and skin cancer removal for over 17 years. Located across from Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital, Grass Valley, new patient openings available. Information at sierraderm.com. And Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us tomorrow at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.